1: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense.
0: Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and Podcast Editor of the War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Money makes the world go round, but the financial world specifically revolves around the dollar. The dollar. The dollar's global supremacy established by the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 has survived the collapse of the post-war gold standard and any number of other crises, recessions, and shocks. Recently, however, a combination of fears about relative American decline and the rise of China, along with frustrations with the uneven impact of financial sanctions on Russia after its invasion of Ukraine, have spawned a new wave of predictions that the dollar's reign may be coming to an end with potentially dire consequences for the future of the American economy and maybe even the American way of life. Are such concerns justified? What does the dollar's global role mean for the world economy, for the United States? To help listeners understand the current state of the dollar, A Better Peace is glad to welcome two colleagues with broad expertise in international finance, Mark Duckenfeld and Robert Farley. Dr. Mark Duckenfeld teaches the economics of national security at the U.S. Army War College. He is the author and editor of numerous books and articles, including Business and the Euro, A History of Financial Disasters, Anglo-American Battles over Free Trade, The Monetary History of Gold, and Invasion of the Western Ampelmenschen. Dr. Robert Farley has taught security and diplomacy courses at the Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce at the University of Kentucky since 2005. In addition to a range of articles and other books, Dr. Farley is the author of Patents for Power, Intellectual Property Law, and the Diffusion of Military Power, and most recently, Waging War with Gold, National Security and the Finance Domain Across the Ages. Welcome to A Better Peace, gentlemen. Thank Thank you. you for having us. So I want to start with a very basic question for both of you, and that is what does it mean when we say that the United States dollar is an international reserve currency?
1: I mean, I think at its very basic, it means that uh, the U.S. dollar is one of the currencies and the primary currency that other countries hold uh, essentially as a hedge with respect to their own obligations, uh, concerns about the international economy, um, and to maintain their own uh, currencies, right? And so they will hold a portfolio of different currencies, kind of like they used to hold gold. Um, And one of these, or the biggest one of those currencies is the American dollar. And so what's the
0: difference... What's the difference between the dollar system that we have, or the dollar as a reserve currency, as it was initially thought of after the Second World War, and today, Mark?
2: Well, the original version of the system still was centered around gold, but not gold that shifted very much between countries. Private ownership of gold in most countries was illegal, and but the major currencies, the dollar, the Deutsche Mark, the franc, the pound, all had fixed ratios to uh, gold or to the dollar, and the dollar was really the bulwark and backbone of the system, because for countries that wanted to settle their accounts for trade or for investment, they wanted to be able to have currency that other people would accept and it might not be the case that they would accept Deutschmarks or, or francs um, with each other usually you'd have to be going and dealing directly with the French or the Germans to do that but everyone was accepting dollars because the US economy was so big US investment was so large that sooner or later they knew that they would have some interactions with the US and there were so many dollars eventually out there that they could then be used when the British were making deals with the Germans or the South Africans with the Brazilians, even though deals between those currencies might be relatively exotic and rare and hence somewhat difficult to make. So the dollar could serve as a a currency that could be used by anybody. Could be used by anybody, but what specific advantages accrue to the
0: United States from the dollar being used as a reserve currency?
1: So I want to step back and and say that like uh, among the things that make the dollar or really any other reserve currency attractive mm-hmm. are liquidity and stability, right? That and and Mark mentioned like it's having just the availability of nearly endless amounts of dollars to complete international transactions makes sort of the dollars useful as this uh, sort of currency that's 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 global, and also the perception that the dollar is going to be stable based on what is more or less a stable political system in the United States. Um, you know, in terms of so the the first answer that anyone gives with respect to the reserve currency and the benefits that accrue to reserve currency are low interest rates, mm-hmm. right? That that essentially it's very easy for the country that that has dollars to borrow extensively because of trust in that system and trust in that currency. Whereas if you're using if you're borrowing in a different currency or if you're a different country, um, then it becomes uh, much more precarious mm-hmm. uh, to lend, and the the interest rates necessarily go up.
0: Sure. Is there a point, Mark, at which? Uh, it becomes too easy to borrow money if you're the international reserve currency. And are, are we, this, this gets to the questions about the future of the future of the dollar, right? Are we in danger of ever reaching a point where the United States overdraws on its, on the advantages of the reserve currency dollar?
2: Well, I think it's unlikely at at the moment, but uh, because the, the U S dollar is sort of the grease for the system of international commerce. And in, in a sense, the world depends upon the U S running big deficits because otherwise the U.S. would be sucking dollars back into the U.S. and there would be fewer dollars out there but the world needs dollars to run on so the us has to s- export its biggest product the us dollar in exchange for you know ipods and t-shirts or whatever else the american consumer wants to buy so sending those dollars out there in that sense serves a purpose now are they sending too many out and is it undermining the dollar's role well that's hard to say at the moment it appears probably not because the us dollar in us The U.S. has been able to borrow at very low interest rates. Um, For the better part of a decade, the U.S. government was able to borrow at effectively zero percent. And in in fact, for a period of time, for several U.S. um, uh, notes, even including the 10-year treasury note, people were loaning money and getting a negative rate of return on the um, inflation-linked bonds. So people were, were so worried about other alternative investments that they would give the U.S. government money and accept slightly less back in you know, five, ten years, which is an extraordinary circumstance to be in.
0: Is that, is that historically unusual? I mean, it sounds it sounds pretty it sounds pretty unusual. But how historically unusual is it that people were willing to accept negative interest rates in order to stay, keep a stable system?
2: Well, it's it's it is very unusual. I mean, it has been the case since really the Great Recession, but that but that was really quite an anomaly um, uh, that was hanging <clears throat> hanging over the system then. But the you know what were your alternatives? People thought the stock market wasn't any good. Mm-hmm. Safe as houses is rather more a joke <laughs> uh, uh, in the light of the. The collapse of the housing market, alternative currencies, um, and uh, you know other countries' economic circumstances were worse right. than the United States. So, being able just to preserve value
1: um, was something that was considered very, very important. Rob and I, and I think that uh, were we to turn back to the nineteen nineties and and look at what the U.S. financial situation looked like mm. right around two thousand. Um, you know people were expecting then well, we might pay off the national debt right what what's would look at these surpluses that go on endlessly kids ask your parents about well, those glorious things but it's it is interesting in context um, you know, U.S. debt played an incredibly stabilizing role in mm-hmm. 2008, right? Mm-hmm. And right. the fact that the United States wanted to borrow a lot of money and was pretty much guaranteed to pay it back, even in a deflationary circumstance, right? And when you're getting less money back, um, was really critical to the survival of the global economy in 2008. See, and
0: this, this I find very interesting because so much of, say, public discourse about money um, uh, gets into, let's say, moralizing about money, right? And so debt bad, uh, surplus good. And yet, if I'm hearing both of you, that one of the ways that a system like this functions is if the biggest economy with the reserve currency is willing to run deficits, that this is to the advantage of the system. Is it also to the advantage of the biggest economy? Or this is what I'm wondering is, is, what is it that the public either imperfectly understands or doesn't understand about this system, whereas we worry about debt? um as though debt will somehow swallow the United States but i'm also hearing you say that this debt is necessary grease for this system and so how do we how do we talk to the public in ways that they can appreciate that what seems to be a paradox mark
2: well i would say there are two ways the first is every debt is also someone else's asset when you borrow money and have a mortgage that mortgage is an asset for the bank so the us debt is the asset of in about 75 percent, 80 percent of the case, um, U.S. citizens and financial institutions. And in a certain degree, it's, the, uh, it's an asset of the federal government. The social security system, for instance, holds a very large amount of U.S. government debt that's helping to pay future retirees. So some of the interest payments that the U.S. government makes are going to pay um, the the elderly. So that's one way of looking at it, that it's both an asset and a obligation. Uh, the other advantage that it has for the United States, and you and Rob had talked about this earlier, is the lower interest rates the U.S. gets to have. And some of the activities the U.S. can engage in that other countries can't. Very large and consistent budget deficits, very large and consistent trade deficits. Normal countries that don't have the international reserve currency can't do that. Eventually they run out of cash, their currency crashes, people go to safer currencies, the dollar, and then they're forced to retrench themselves. And the U.S. is not in that circumstance um so the french had referred to as an exorbitant privilege exorbitant privilege not and not engaged in by other countries right
0: and yet and and if i'm understanding you both right so this is a this is it is a privilege um, and it also puts the debate about uh american debt right whatever we might think about what we're spending the money on whatever we might think about whether we should be running the debt that the debt itself does not threaten the dollar's role as a reserve currency, but is actually a feature not a bug of the dollar's role as reserve
2: currency. Is that a fair statement? As Alexander Hamilton said, it's a national blessing. It's a national (laughs) blessing.
0: Thank you. Well, and so let me flip it around. So, Rob, you've you've been on uh, the podcast before talking about the finance domain and so the use of financial instruments as an instrument of national power. And you were here um, at the War College this week talking about it. Um, And so what we're seeing right now is the United States is leading an effort to use uh, the, the tools of the finance domain to try to influence geopolitical behavior, right? Trying to coerce the Russians um, with, let's say, mixed success so far. Um, uh, and related to that is what, what you can hear from critics of American policy is because we have essentially pulled out all the stops with financial tools to sanction the Russians, to remove them from SWIFT, um, and the, because the Russians have not collapsed yet, Um, That somehow this shows either the insufficiency of those instruments or the other argument that I hear when people imagine, say, the Chinese and the Russians and their mythical friends in the BRICS coming together with an alternative international system, that by driving the Russians out of the dollar world, we are effectively encouraging the creation of an alternative world to the dollar. I'm gonna just I'm gonna do that thing that interviewers shouldn't say after going on for a long time. I'm gonna say, what
1: do you think about that? Please Rob? comment on Please my comment, comment on what I just <laughs> um, said, Rob. <laughs> So I think it's worth stopping and talking for a moment about what those tools look like, sure. right? And and so a lot of the tools have emerged, not so much from the existence of the dollar as reserve currency, but from you know what we all sort of recognize now to be the digital revolution, the mm-hmm. information revolution, right? And that has given um, the U.S. government an unprecedented and almost unthinkable degree of visibility into how dollars are used mm-hmm. globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and really sort of the first foreign victims of uh, sort of that level of surveillance have been drug cartels and terrorists, primarily, right, in terms of the Treasury and other places being able to track their money and figure out how much they have, analyze connections between the lots of them in ways that were hard to imagine in sort of your Miami Vice days of the 1980s of follow the money. Um, And what we're seeing with Russia is kind of an amped up uh, vision of what we try have tried with both Iran and North Korea, right, in terms of cutting them off from the financial system. Um, in the case of Russia, uh, cutting Russia off from its massive reserves in dollars that were held outside of Russia may in the end be one of the biggest, and that was day one. Um, that's going to be a long-term problem for the Russian elite and for the Russian state more broadly. Um, but uh, as you allude, the um, it hasn't brought Russia down. It hasn't brought Russia crumbling to the ground, right? Um, and part of the reason I think it hasn't brought Russia down is because they were pretty good. They planned for this, right? They didn't plan for a long war against Ukraine. They did plan for a long financial war. And so they accumulated lots of financial reserves. They were um, they had a very sound budgetary policy running up to the war. Um, and so... You know i think that the, the 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 book is still out on how lethal are the tools that the united states is able to use because of its particular peculiar financial position and how many other countries could stand up to the kind of um, use of those tools beyond russia which is in some ways almost uniquely well well designed to avoid that kind of pain
0: well, and the fact that the Russians, for example, are selling a commodity that 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 people want of oil, right? That's something that other folks might not be able to do. But related to this, Mark, and I want to bring you in on this. So, what what are the realistic prospects, right? If the Chinese were to wake up one day and say, "We're tired of this Yankee imperialism, and the century of humiliation is over. We want we want to declare the renminbi, or the uh, or we want to, We want to create a new international reserve currency." Um, I guess saying you want to create an international reserve currency is like Michael Scott in the office, walking into the office and shouting, I declare bankruptcy, right? It's not, it's actually not just something you declare. It's something, it's it's kind of complicated. So how would, how would
2: creating an alternative to the dollar work? Well, that's a very good question. First, you'd have, and part of the reason and attractiveness of the dollar is that the U.S operates by the rule of law, that if you have contracts, generally you get to keep them. And the U.S. isn't um, ruthlessly arbitrary in its international engagement. Now, the U.S. runs some risk of undermining that to the extent that its sanctions are focused on narrow U.S. interests, like say against Cuba. Then a country might say, well, look, if we get afoul of U.S. interests, that's not a good reason to be in the dollar. But when it's Facing roughly universal condemnation on the scale the Russians did and the U.S. is seen as enforcing a sort of an international norm, I think there's less of a consequence. But still, a country like China might um, see that this, this would be unattractive, right? So how could they declare reserve currency? Well, they'd have to ramp up the amount of their currency that was available. Now, the Chinese certainly have an advantage in that they're a major trading partner with lots of countries. On the other hand, they're running a big surplus, right. and what they're taking are dollars. If they were running a deficit and insisting on paying in renminbi, then they'd be in a different uh, circumstance. Um, but just to keep in mind, just as a, a degree of the scale of the problem they would face to get other people to use their currency, um, about 60% of the foreign reserve currencies held around the world are held in U.S. dollars, and just over 20% are held in euros. So that's 80% in the dollar and in uh, euros. And the yen and pound come up with another 10%. Those are the top four Mm -hmm. currencies. And then it's not the renminbi that's number five, it's the Canadian dollar, (laughs) uh, which just, uh, uh, and they're followed by the renminbi, which is closely trailed by the Australian dollar. So at that point, and they're all around two to two and a half percent of international reserves. So there aren't a whole lot of them out there. And there's not a lot of of renminbi Greece mm-hmm. for the uh, system there's a lot of trade with china and that's certainly a foundation uh but uh, uh, but there's also other issues of bond issues foreign direct investment and while we we think a lot about the chinese investing and buying things up considering the scale of of you know 150 years of dollar and pound and right. gilder accumulation of it uh, of foreign direct investment it's relatively uh, meager, right? And uh, and and I would say usually it's, it, the loss of reserve currency status is, tends to be rather more self-inflicted. The last international reserve currency was the pound, and the dollar displaced it. But why? Because the British ran two world wars that they funded by borrowing lots of money, and um, and they sold off essentially to fund. The Second World War, all of their financial assets, particularly in the United States. The U.S. isn't anywhere near that sort of circumstance at the moment. And the other crucial feature is there was a, you know, viable rival mm-hmm. um, to the pound in the in the dollar. I mean, the the pound's position was 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 such. You know, Jules Verne when he was writing Around the World in 80 Days. Uh, that you know the hero Phineas Fogg goes to the Bank of England. He takes his carpet bag. He opens it up, slips into it. What um, they said it was a goodly roll of Bank of England notes, which would pass wherever he goes. And that was the reserve currency of the 19th century. He could right. go around the world with a, a bag full of British. Pounds right. in much the way probably one could with a sufficient amount of U.S. dollars today. You need a bigger bag, man. <laughs> Maybe. <Yeah.
0: laughs>
2: well, but actually, the, this I think
0: is 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 interesting the way you put it because also even though the the pound has lost its uh, supremacy, um, London still matters. The pound still matters. You say the pound is still uh, some double digit percentage of global five uh, percent. Okay, five percent of uh, of global um, holdings. The I guess this is where so much of the talk about the future of the dollar um, will drift into, uh, let's say, uh, apocalyptic fantasies, Mm -hmm. right? And usually it's somebody is imagining, right, this is the, the, the scourge, right, that the United States is going to be punished for its economic or its political sins by losing this position. And yet I'm hearing you, I'm hearing both of you say, right, it's hard to know how anybody would replace it. Rob, what do you think?
1: I mean, I think we can all sit here and imagine scenarios where something happens in the U.S. financial system, where the United States does inflict upon itself um, the sort of dreadful financial situation, which because, you know, so much of the reserve currency, I think, depends. And I think this is where we could also sort of bring in crypto. Yes. um, That what, you know having a reserve currency isn't just about having it in your vaults, right? It's about having faith in the economic system that the country with the reserve currency is essentially offering, right? And with respect to the dollar, that means having faith in the U.S. government's ability to manage the tiller, right? Mm -hmm. That you need to know someone is there. You have to have some transparency into what they do, but you also have to know that they're going to act in a responsible way when there's some kind of crisis, right? And so, you know, that's what we see in 2008. That's what we've seen and other crises. Um, nobody See, has, I was
0: starting to feel better and now all of a sudden <laughs> I don't feel so good.
1: Nobody has that faith in the Chinese government yet. Maybe they will, right? Um, but, and, and the other the, the crypto problem is that crypto exists by taking all of the, the levers away. Right? Mm-hmm. And so you can never trust Bitcoin to solve a financial crisis because there's nobody who's managing Bitcoin when the crisis comes. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the United States has certainly ventured into um, places where it feels like we might not be the most reliable hand on the levers of financial control. And I think that's the real threat.
0: That's the real threat. But there still are figurative and, in some cases, literal piles of dollars around the world. Um, And... Uh, for my own curiosity, right? What is the relationship between the dollar, or do, let's say dollar bills or hundred dollar bills, which I imagine would be the, the the physical manifestation of the dollar in most places, of the when people say, right, we 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 just we could just keep printing money, um, when we talk about these holdings that are in foreign banks and that are that are used to settle exchanges between countries that are neither neither of whom is the United States, right? Um, uh, How does, you know, I guess these are these are transactions that are going on essentially outside of American control. Um, We have nothing we have nothing to say about them as long as we're maintaining the value of those Benjamin Franklin's. Right. Nobody really cares um, what's going on. Um, In what ways does the United States try to um, monitor or control the the supply of let's say what used to be called petrodollars, but let's say global dollars, right? These dollars that are outside of the U.S. Do we do anything at all, Mark? Can we do anything at all?
2: Well, I mean, that was part of the petrodollar issue. The U.S. couldn't do too much uh, about it. Um, The other hand, I mean, you don't want to get too metaphysical here, but a lot of those don't, I mean, they only exist as blips on a computer screen in the same way that when you go to the ATM to withdraw money, if the bank said, its computer said you had zero dollars there, what's your recourse? Uh, you know, um, you you believe there's something called, you know, you know, a few hundred dollars in a professor 's bank account and uh and yeah if we 're lucky <laughs> if we're lucky payday. um and and yet um you know we 're quite dependent upon the uh, system and overseas um and and you know in the Cayman islands or you know in uh Cyprus or you know the sunny places for shady people um that uh you know those accounts are are quite unregulated right um, so the u s ability to control them is is, is limited but as, as Rob pointed out there is in the new digital world, a vast surveillance network. and this is you know part of how the sanctions regime is working and why they keep coming up with new things is that there's a vast element of surveillance that goes on, which is normally quite passive, right. um, just you know sucking up and or potentially being able to suck up information. Mm-hmm. But um, when they do focus their mind on it, um, the u s and uh, allied uh, intelligence agencies, treasuries, and the banks that they cooperate with c- can see a lot. Right. They can
0: see a lot. And that. Um, uh, since I have you both here, I want to ask that question about banking secrecy, right? We have, there's the uh, there, There's legendary banking secrecy, and in, in Switzerland, once upon a time, not so much, right? As This is where I wanted to go on this, that you know, now that it, if if so many of these transfers, they're not people showing up with a carpet bag full of bills and saying, "Please put this in my, you know, put this to my account in Zurich," um, because people can't tape dollar bills all over themselves and get on airplanes anymore the way perhaps once one might have done. Um, if you're if you're moving them electronically. Um, Uh, People can watch that and can see that. And so what is the role of banking secrecy today as a practical thing outside of the fantasies of James Bond films about secret numbered accounts that nobody knows who holds them?
1: I mean, I think I think banking secrecy is again. It's sort of. I mean, the more you work with money, the more you th- read about finance, the more you sort of come to the realization it's all some massive consensual hallucination that we're all sharing, right? <laughs> um, and it's just. I think we just know, have a, we have a now a title for
0: this uh, yeah. for this
1: podcast. How long the system lasts is how long people are happy with that hallucination, mm-hmm. um, and banking secrecy is part of that, right? Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, banking secrecy is pretty conventional, right? Mm-hmm. It 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 exists because convention. Mm-hmm. Um, and when when sort of the convention no longer serves the original purpose, it might change, right? Um, or when uh, the people who thought that they were guaranteed secrecy uh, do something uh, untoward, uh, then uh, they don't have secrecy anymore. And I think it goes a step farther, right? And so you mentioned... You can't. People don't just walk around with jackets full of dollar bills anymore. Um, they have to communicate electronically. Even when they do move around with dollar bills, we now are able to track that in ways because we have so much data on how m- m- money moves electronically, oh, right? Okay. And so we can then infer where the dark spaces are and figure out things that are happening in those parts of the world or those parts of the economy just because so much of the rest of the economy has become visible to us. So there's no way there's no way to escape just by trying to go dark and just trying to manage with gold or Bitcoin or illicit dollars.
0: See, and this is good because this is where I wanted to go. Mark, you've written a lot about the gold standard and any discussion about reserve currencies, any discussion about the dollar, somebody is going to say why don't we just go back to the gold standard? and i I know you know why we don't just go back to the gold standard mark. So why don't you tell our listeners, why don't we just go back to the gold standard?
2: Well, it's an extremely rule oriented system and it's very deflationary. it It robs you of many of the levers that you might want to have in adjusting interest rates to deal with your domestic um circumstances and part of the attraction the gold standard had was that it linked everyone's currencies together mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. but if one country starts adjusting the value then that defeats much of the much of the purpose the other fact is there's not a whole lot of gold in the world it, mm. would, it would fit into all the gold in the world would fit into bliss hall our auditorium here at the army war college um so the the utility of gold in a sort of pre-modern culture is you could you could have it in your hand you could sort of test how good it was like um archimedes did how, how pure it was to see how much there was um but um we have you know whatever it is seven billion people on Earth Now, 300 million Americans, Um, the real value would be having the physical gold. Otherwise, you would get to the, you know, collective hallucination that um, Rob was talking about that you would rely upon the computer telling you, you had a certain amount of gold. And do you trust the computer? Well, if you trust the computer, telling you how much gold you have to the microgram, why can't you trust it? With um, how many dollars you might you might have, so that would be mm-hmm. a reason you wouldn't do it, and and the dollars proved to be superior, which wasn't in you know and and paper currencies in general have, and this wasn't necessarily always the case. I mean, your, yours and my favorite movie, Goldfinger, is right, yes. based around the scheme to irradiate um, U.S. gold in Fort Knox for 59 years. Uh, It was 1964, so it would be coming off its irradiation uh, (laughs) this year. Um, And this was supposed to throw the West into chaos because the gold reserves would be unavailable. Well, you know, less than 10 years later, the U.S. cut the link to gold, wouldn't redeem uh, dollars for gold. So the gold in Fort Knox is as if it's been irradiated in the last 50 years. And while there were some financial disruptions, um, the, you know the, the, we've had one of the biggest and most sustained periods of economic growth and transformation in human history. See, now that's interesting because the idea is, is that you, you really
0: never had to pick up that gold and move it from one place to another anyway. You could reassign it to somebody and you could say, okay, now that belongs to you because you exchanged it for dollars, but I'm not actually picking up moving it. So it's either in Fort Knox now or in the basement of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or wherever it is or, or in Zurich or wherever people keep gold bars. So this this gets us back. So we're just about to the end of this conversation, but it gets us back to the question of so what is the future of the international monetary system. What's the future of this hallucination? Right, considering that right now, you know, crypto was a particularly powerful hallucination um, that uh, may indeed we, we may be coming down off of this high. I don't know. I'd have to ask Sam Bankman-Fried about that. But the um, what is the future of an increasingly both globalized, electronified, cyber-oriented international system? Um, does is the the dollar still likely to be? Play the central role that it plays, and uh, or is that going to change, and how could it change in in our lifetime? Let's say in the next fifty nine years, when when, it, when the, the next half life of uranium after uh, Goldfinger.
1: Well, uh, so. You know, to go back, I think we can envision some some catastrophic ways in that it might change, right? Mm-hmm. Where um, there's a prolong- prolonged political crisis in the United States that results in um, some kind of rolling default, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't just default all at once, but you kind of default over time, and it becomes worse, sure. right? Because the more you default, the less uh, confidence there is in the currency. People start dumping the currency, value plummets, right? That has all kinds of different impacts. Now, I think that that would be catastrophic not just for the United States, but it would spark. A pretty profound financial catastrophe around the globe. You know, after that, who picks that up? Right. I mean, you can make an argument for the euro. Um, I think you might even be able to make a better argument for the yen. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, you simply have you, you essentially have to replicate the conditions under which the dollar achieved its dominance, which are really really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think especially given the that the United States and Russia. Sure, You know, monetary theory over time is fascinating, right, because when you look in the past, people didn't really understand how currency worked in a lot of ways, so they kind of vaguely knew what was going on. I mean, now we have so much more work on what the reserve currency actually means and how valuable it is on both the domestic and international context that – you know, our attempts to defend the dollar as the reserve currency are going to be different and probably more effective than the British attempts to defend the pound sterling because we have a better um, a better insight into what it actually means.
0: I think that's fair. Yeah. Mark?
2: Well, I, I think um, by the more likely circumstances, we'll continue to, you know, stumble along as we have. But as Rob said there, you can certainly envision um, in – Thirty days or more, um, such a uh, you know political crisis occurring. I think the more likely result would not be a replacement by a single currency, but a r- sort of regional blockism. Um, that um, that countries that trade predominantly with the European Union, particularly Northwest Africa and the Middle East, might start gravitating towards more use of the euro. There could be a yen block a renminbi block. Um, the, the already the neighbors of India and South Africa, where there's a lot of remittances um link their currencies to the the rupee and the rand. So you can see a regional blocks. And the U.S. sort of um the, the national security focus on great power competition would sadly, I think, tend to enforce such a world view of, of regional blocks. Because that's what great powers do, right? They enforce political and economic order within their regional sphere of influence. So I think that's probably the more likely um, downside, but even within such a system, the dollar w- would still have utility i mean it would it might be the second choice within a region, but it seems like it would still remain the one that had the the relative global reach, although it might be more with you know the the Americas or perhaps oil producing countries that the u s is closely tied to right
0: well with that with uh, that sort of vague uh, and yet vaguely hopeful perhaps or at least uh, the chances are uh, things will continue much as they are until they don't Right, things things that go on forever generally, things that can't go on forever generally don't. Right. Um, but uh, we don't know when. You forever go bankrupt is,
1: slow, and then you go bankrupt fast, and then you go
0: bankrupt fast. But I hope that this conversation for our listeners, I know it's been illuminating for me. I hope it's helped to illuminate them on the questions of the dollar and reserve currency and the uh, uh, the future of the world economy. So I want to thank Mark Duckenfeld and Rob Farley for joining us today to talk about the dollar on a better piece. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment to uh, subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice because you can bet your bottom dollar that subscribing to A Better Piece is good value. And after you've subscribed to A Better Piece, please uh, take a moment to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice because that is how other people can find out about us so we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu, and have a great day.